story and a little bit of Carl's story too because they kind of, they interweave because we met when I was the young age of 16. I know, not long ago, no, no, <laughs> that's right. Uh, and today I've titled my message, Nothing is Wasted, because that is our journey. God has used everything that we've been through, uh, used it not just for our own benefit, but for the benefit of others and for the glory of God. And how thankful I am for the grace of God. Without it, I would be stuck in my sin and shame. Without it, I would be a far more broken version of myself than I am now. I'd be without God, which is unimaginable. Over the years, some of you, actually many of you, will have heard some elements of Carl's story. But if you're new to Life Church, you may not have. So I'll try and sum up a very long story in a very short amount of time. His father died of a brain tumour when he was 18 months old. And his mother remarried. And his stepfather was, unfortunately, an alcoholic and very abusive uh, man who was also a con man. And so for many, many years of Carl's upbringing, it was, there was certainly not a happy time. And Carl was desperate for the love of a father, but he was constantly rejected and bullied at home. And in turn, he actually became a bully at high school himself, largely out of the fact that it was the only way in place he could feel a sense of control. It was his outlet for anger. He was, uh, let's put it nicely, he was encouraged out of school at about 15 years old after three years of pretty much being told at school that he was stupid and that he wouldn't amount to anything and that he was just trouble. He went into an apprenticeship at a pool table making company. <coughs> he was very good with his hands as a craftsman. Uh, but in that place he was abused, tortured and threatened by the tradesmen there. He developed many serious injuries including broken bones and he even developed the worst case of trench mouth that Christchurch had ever seen. Trench mouth is like an ulcerated mouth often happened in the war from the stress that the soldiers were under. He was threatened that if he ever told anybody that these guys would kill his little sister. And he believed them because of the way that he was treated. In that time he developed alcohol and drug dependencies in a way to escape from his pain. But finally... One Christmas holiday when he was due to go back to work, he just couldn't, and out it all came. He confessed to everything that had been going on, and it ended up going to court, which 2020 even turned up and, and followed. It was, a, it was quite a big case. But that is the point where Carl and I met, so I'll get into a bit more of that later. All that to say how evident God's grace was and is in his life, to be here today, and so I thought I'd share a bit of our story together. My mother was the beginning of faith in Jesus in our family, so we didn't have a long history of faith in our generational line. I'm really grateful for that. She was persistently invited to church by a friend, and she finally relented because he promised that if she came, he'd put new tires on her car. <laughs> I know, whatever it takes, right? <laughs> And she cried through that first service, not understanding why, and eventually committed her life to Christ. I don't know if any of you have been in that place where you're in the worship, you're just bawling your eyes out, you don't know what's going on. That was me as well. Unfortunately, my father didn't agree with her new faith. But he allowed myself and my brother to go to church with my mum, partly so he could watch sports in peace, but also partly because he thought we were bright kids and that as we grew up, would realize we wouldn't be brainwashed like my mum. 
and that we would leave the church of our own accord. I made a decision in Sunday school to become a Christian when I was just a kid. I don't remember the occasion. I don't know how old I was. But as I grew up, I knew I was a Christian. And I knew that God was real. What I didn't know is that my belief and trust in God would be tested in the coming years. In my teenage years, while I still attended church and I believed in God, I I didn't really live my faith, you know. I didn't share my faith with my friends. I got myself in some pretty difficult situations. They knew I went to church, but that didn't do much when I was drinking and smoking with them. I wasn't any great kind of witness growing up. I'd lie to my mum about where I was going and what I was doing. And that's really where I started living with a split identity. Around the age of 14, one of my friends asked me to join her in playing with a Ouija board. For those who don't know what a Ouija board is, it's a board with letters around it and a yes and a no, and you ask for spirits to answer your questions. When you put your hands on the planchette in the middle, the spirits move the planchette to spell out the answers. Now, I thought this was all just a game. Part of me knew it was wrong, but I convinced myself it couldn't be that big of a deal. Oh. (laughs) And over the course of a year or two, I began to get more and more drawn into a very dark spiritual place, and I became almost addicted to doing Ouija boards and spirit writing and other things I don't need to mention, and some very misguided attempt to fill a hole in my life that was only meant to be filled by the Holy Spirit. It was all well and good for a while. Bit of fun, bit of intrigue. And that's how Satan often masks himself. But his true colours are always revealed once he has trapped you. And that's where things began to get a bit frightening. There's no really young kids in here. I don't want to give anyone nightmares. What had been fun conversations and almost, dare I say it, sickens me to say it, but friendships, with these spirits. It started twisting into nasty, hateful, fear-inducing sessions. It was no longer contained to the times that I was using the Ouija board. It surrounded my life. I constantly felt watched and under threat and fearful. At this point, what had I done? How could the Lord ever forgive me for this? I had rejected him and befriended Satan. That's how I saw it. Surely that was the most unforgivable sin. Over that year or so, from the outside, my parents had no knowledge of what I was involved in as I was still doing okay in school, still going to church on a Sunday. I visited Dad on Saturdays, so they'd divorced by then. But they did both notice independently that I'd become very introverted and depressed, and they were concerned at the change that they were seeing. It came to a crunch point for me where I had to make a choice. I couldn't deny that Satan was real. I'd been spending time with the demonic, and I saw that it was all too real. So then I couldn't deny the reality that God also existed. He had to. (laughs) I needed him to. I needed to escape this world that I'd gotten myself into. At that point, I told my friend that I could no longer be part of this stuff anymore. And it really affected our friendship. She was angry at me. A few weeks later, she asked me to help her out. She had family coming to stay at her house, and she had the Ouija board in her room, and she didn't want it to be found. So she asked me to take it to my house while they were there. Stupidly, I agreed. 
I took it home and I hid it in my bottom drawer. That night I went to bed as normal, but I remember waking in complete fear. You know that kind of fear where you're lying in bed and you think you hear a noise in the house and you freeze? Kind of like that. Well, I woke with that feeling, frozen in fear. It was pitch black. Not the normal kind of just night black. I couldn't see my hand right in front of my face. My heart was pounding, and there was a seven-foot figure towering over the end of my bed. And I can only describe its presence as evil. I couldn't move. I couldn't run. I just croaked out the word Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus, and it doesn't matter whether you shout it or whether you whisper it. There is power in his name. Well, suddenly my entire room lightened, and I realized it was about 5 a.m. in the morning, so it shouldn't have been that dark. I flew out of my bed, ran into my mum, freaking out, and told her I'd had a nightmare. Because what else could I say? I got rid of the Ouija board, but I lived in fear. Only now I had just a little bit of hope, because Jesus turned up for me. His name held greater power than what was against me. He didn't leave me on my own, but I still had a deep sense of unworthiness and shame. And this is where the love story starts, and the knight in shining armor turns up. (laughs) Well, actually, he was clothed in black jeans and a ripped black jersey, shaved head and an anger problem, but thank God for his perspective and not ours, right? My brother invited me along to a bonfire uh, with a few people from church. Now, that was unusual in itself. My brother didn't want to hang out with his younger sister, usually. At the same time, Carl's brother Dave invited him along to that same bonfire, also extremely unusual for that to happen in his family. Carl had been praying, God, if you're real, something has to change because I can't keep going with life the way that it is. He was suicidal, drug addicted, and really hurting. And across the bonfire flames, our eyes met... (laughs) And the rest is history. Actually, the rest was a journey, not a fairy tale. Carl was the first person I confided in about my fears and what I'd been involved in. He had no idea what to do. (laughs) So he told my brother, who told my mother, and I got prayed for and set free. And thank God for that, because through that prayer time, I asked for forgiveness. And I received God's mercy and grace. The fear and shame went And my understanding of God's grace and the power in his name grew. And boy, I was going to need it. Carl and I were together for over four years before we got married. It just took that much time for him to work through stuff. And that time caused me to not only believe in God, but to hang on to God for dear life. Because I could not deal with the stuff that Carl had been through. I've only shared a fraction with you today. I didn't know how to fix his brokenness or heal his hurt. I tried and I failed. At times it seemed too big for me. It was. His addiction, his anger, his pain. Once I found him trying to hang himself in the park down the road from my house. I needed Jesus. This time not just for myself, but for him. But I knew the power in Jesus' name. I knew the victory he had won on the cross. I've seen it firsthand. I had seen the power that Jesus has over the demonic. So I could trust that he would bring Carl through his pain. And he did. So my first point, that was all just before the first point. 
your past can become your praise. Our hurts, pain, and disappointments when trusted to God can become our praise. For the believer, our praise is a weapon. It's a battle cry. Praise reminds me and reminds the devil, I will not back down. I will trust God for my breakthrough. The word praise comes from the Latin word pratium, meaning price. Originally, it meant to set a great price on. So when we praise God, we are putting a great price and great value on him and his acts. Praise and prayer are dependence on God and are huge weapons in spiritual battle. At times, God worked in Carl with miraculous healing of his addiction and deliverance. At other times, with painful processing and growth, correcting wrong thinking and bringing truth to the lies the enemy had convinced him of over the years that he was stupid and worthless and that life wasn't worth living. Can I grab a drink? Thank you. You're all making me so nervous. (laughs) Kidding. (laughs) Kidding. (laughs) No, you're all lovely. Just public speaking. I helped Carl by being a voice of hope and truth, doing my best to show unconditional love and grace. And I had to do it a lot, trust me. And in a practical way, I helped him to read and overcome the mindset that he wasn't smart. But it was God that truly resurrected him from spiritual death to life. Filled him with love and hope and set him free. And I continue to be blown away by his transformation. His past and our past truly is our praise. My second point, your life can become your leverage. Carl's life transformation has been the one thing that my dad has not been able to explain away. My dad, who didn't want us to get married at the time, and while not a Christian, yet, is now one of our biggest supporters. People who were in our lives back in the bad old days, some are here today, who see the miraculous changes in Carl's life are drawn to God because they want what he has. They want life transformation. Your life up to this point is made up of so many experiences, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We can evaluate the quality of our life according to whether the good stuff outweighs the bad stuff. Everybody has a combination of both, and we're all definitely on different parts of a scale. If I were to ask you, what is your most significant memory in your life? What's the most significant memory that you have, life-changing moment? For some, you would remember a great moment of achievement or breakthrough or healing. Others might recall a painful or negative, maybe abusive thing that has had a huge influence on your life. What I've realized through all the good and bad that I've been through is that when given to God, nothing is wasted. Carl's story of rejection and abuse, once given to God and once he received the truth of who he was as a son of God, became a powerful part of shaping how he would treat others and have a heart for people to feel that strong sense of belonging and acceptance. Your life is destined to produce fruit, but if all you have is negative memories without a positive outcome, your growth can be stunted. I believe if we turn our pain over to God, he can use even the greatest disaster to produce fruit. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That is a promise. 
that no bad thing, no harm done to us, no sin that we have committed can stop us when we turn it over to him. Perhaps the very things that we think are, let's just put it politely, manure in our lives are actually just the fertilizer God uses to help us produce fruit. Nothing is wasted in God's economy. Your life and all it has becomes the leverage. The dictionary definition of leverage is the power to influence a person or situation. It becomes the leverage for you to influence others for the kingdom of God. Carl and I were convinced that God had brought him through all of his manure so that he could bring hope to others, particularly teenagers at the time, so he began youth leading. The youth pastors at the time kept asking me to youth lead, and I kept turning them down. In my mind, what did I have to offer? I wasn't any kind of leader. I'm not like Carl. I'm an introvert. I hardly went to youth group myself because I was too shy to talk to anyone. I had no friends in the church. I made terrible decisions in my life. My brother was the, the extrovert, the youth leader, surrounded by all his friends, and I was always Greg's sister. Still sat with my mum in church. They roped me in eventually, but it nearly took brute force. So your obstacle can be your opportunity. So we've talked a lot about stuff from the past and what it can be used for when you turn it over to God. But what about the stuff that's ahead of you that just seems like too big a mountain, too hard an obstacle? What if my problem is not what I've done in the past or what someone's done to me? What if the problem is just part of who I am? My personality, my disability, my health problem, my looks? What if I am my obstacle? Well, listen to the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19, 1 through 10. It's a bit long, so bear with me. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He's gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, if, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Let's just go a little bit deeper into that text. You can keep it on the screen. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Man, name of Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector and wealthy. Chief tax collector and he was wealthy. That statement right there is saying a lot more than it looks like it's saying. Tax collectors weren't particularly popular, understandably, because to a certain extent they were seen as sellouts or even traitors. Not only was Zacchaeus a tax collector, but he was a chief tax collector. And apparently to get that sort of position that Zacchaeus held, people would bid on how much tax 
they believed they could collect. The Roman governors would appoint people based on their bids. And the tax collectors made their money by getting anything over and above that amount. So Zacchaeus got his position by promising to generate the highest taxes out of anyone who applied. Well, that probably wouldn't make him particularly popular amongst the Jewish people. Not only that, but it says he was wealthy, which means that he was making a whole lot more money on top of those taxes, personally getting rich out of it. So he's a sellout. He got his job by promising to make life hard for his fellow Jews, and he's getting personally rich out of the deal. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. So Zacchaeus has a desire to see Jesus, but he cannot see because he's too short. I can relate. It's actually not that he's just short. It's because there's an obstacle in his way, right? I mean, if you're short but there's nothing in front of you, you can still see. It's the combination here of being short and the obstacle in his way that's the problem. In fact, if being short was the case's only problem, I think there's a simple solution. You ask the people to nicely move away so you can stand in the front. That's what happens at the Santa Parade, I think. The big people move out of the way, the little people go to the front. Well, Zacchaeus' problem wasn't just that he was too short. His problem was that the people he was going to ask to move were the people that hated him for being a tax collector. They didn't want to get out of his way. Why should they? Why should he get to see Jesus? He's a tax collector and a sinner. So now Zacchaeus has a problem. He's short, obstacle in his way. People aren't going to help. So Zacchaeus climbs a tree, which seems simultaneously to be both a sensible thing to do and quite a strange thing to do for an adult man. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down, welcomed him gladly. People saw it, began to mutter. He's going to be the guest of a sinner. Do you ever wonder who all these people were? There seemed to be so many times when Jesus said or did something and a whole lot of people expressed an opinion. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Self-righteous and critical words. Whose house could Jesus have gone to where he was not the guest of a sinner? But instead of responding to the words of the people, Zacchaeus responds to the presence of Jesus. That sentence is in here for someone this morning. You need to stop listening to the words of the critical. And you need to be in the presence of Jesus. He gives this amazing promise, Zacchaeus. Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions. And if I've cheated anyone, I'll pay back four times. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Half of his possessions and paying back four times the amount. Under Jewish law, if anybody cheated anyone, they were required to pay back the full price plus a fifth extra on top. But Zacchaeus is going way beyond the law because he's had a complete change of heart. But here's the thing about the story of Zacchaeus that has really struck me, and it's something I want you to hear. It was Zacchaeus' flaws, his obstacle, that led him to the tree. So his shortcomings, if you will. Where was Zacchaeus when Jesus called to him? Where was Zacchaeus when Jesus said to him, I'm staying at your house today? 
Where was Zacchaeus when Jesus said, I'm going to meet with you? I want to spend time with you. You see, it was his obstacle that led him to the tree, but it was from the tree that Jesus called him. That was his opportunity. Jesus is saying to him, and you can replace Zacchaeus' name with your own as I say this. So he's saying it to you too. Zacchaeus, I have searched you. I know you. I know when you sit and when you rise. I know your thoughts. I know when you go out and when you lie down. I am familiar with your ways, Zacchaeus. You can't flee from my presence. You can't hide from my gaze. When you are hidden in the crowds, I'm there. When you climb a tree, I'm there. For I created your inmost being. I knit you together in your mother's womb. I know your past, Zacchaeus. I know your faults. But you are fearfully and wonderfully made, Zacchaeus. You have been and are being crafted, shaped and moulded. And now, Zacchaeus, your past can become your praise. Your life is now your leverage. Your obstacle became the opportunity that now sees you redeemed. You were a slave, but freedom has come to this house, for you are a son of Abraham. Even his wealth was redeemed. Money that he had gained for himself was now given for the kingdom. That is the redemptive power of Jesus. Now, if you had told me back on those terrible teenage, early 20s that Carl and I would be leading Life Church or any church in the future, I would have laughed in your face and suspected you to be under the influence of something. <laughs> but that is where God's grace is so evident because our past is our praise, our life is our leverage, and our obstacle is our opportunity. But today, I'm most excited to tell you through my story that your weakness can become your weapon. Do you know, I used to do that preaching and Jill Bennett, our founding pastor, would sit in the front row and make slurping noises when you had a drink through the street. (laughs) I love the message version of 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7 to 10. Because of the extravagance of those revelations, and so I wouldn't get a big head, I was given the gift of a handicap to keep me in constant touch with my limitations. Who feels like that? Satan's angel did his best to get me down. What he in fact did was push me to my knees. No danger then of walking around high and mighty. At first I didn't think of it as a gift, and I begged God to remove it. Three times I did that, then he told me, my grace is enough. It's all you need. My strength comes into its own in your weakness. Once I heard that, I was glad to let it happen. I quit focusing on the handicap and began appreciating the gift. It was a case of Christ's strength moving in on my weakness. Now I take limitations in stride and with good cheer, almost. These limitations that cut me down to size, abuse, accidents, opposition, bad breaks, I just let Christ take over. And so the weaker I get, the stronger I become. Fantastic scripture. The areas of sin and weakness in your life when yielded to God do not define us. They can be turned around and used for good, for his glory. As a weapon against the very enemy that tripped you up in the first place. My weaknesses led me into occult practices and spiritual darkness and oppression. But God's grace and forgiveness has taken that part of my life and redeemed it. He has given me spiritual discernment to see the enemy at work in others' lives. 
And I get to proclaim the powerful name of Jesus over them and see them healed and set free. It's just amazing that God does this for us. When I read Ephesians 6, I love the armor of God because we're in a spiritual battle and God prepares us and enables us. We put on armor that protects us from the attack, but he also gives us a weapon. Verse 17 says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So my weakness is now my weapon. Taking the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, truth, to the lies and deception of the enemy. My unforgivable sin in his hands redeemed and repurposed. You may look at your weakness with shame today. But I want you to understand that the very weakness you are thinking of can actually become a weapon taken from you by God's grace, redeemed and restored, then put back in your hands to set other people free and extend his kingdom because that's the God we serve. By his grace, we are saved. By his grace, we are set free. We then become his instruments of grace. What weakness do you have today? What for you is an area of regret or shame, or something that stops you going forward in your relationship with God? Do you trust God enough to take that weakness, place it in the hands of your loving Heavenly Father, for Him to melt it down, remold it, and give it back to you in the form of a weapon? What you may not have grasped is that He trusts you. Your weakness doesn't disqualify you. It's the opposite. It qualifies you because in your weaknesses, his strength becomes evident. He trusts you enough to place a weapon in your hands. How many parents are confident to do that with their kids? Not me. The sword of the Spirit. Some of you need that revelation today. He trusts you despite your weaknesses. In fact, because of them. I have absolutely no doubt in the power of the name of Jesus. The authority given to us as children of God to use his name to see people healed, set free, transformed, and restored. The enemy can't stand in the face of it. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. There's a key in that scripture, though. We have to first submit to God. Understanding and knowing that he is trustworthy. He loves us. He knows better than us. He has plans and purposes for us. His ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are higher than ours. He sees what lays ahead of us and what lays behind us. So we submit to him. Then we have to resist the devil. Now, I used to think that word resist meant kind of like resisting temptation, like a chocolate biscuit type resist temptation. But having encountered the devil a few times now, I believe the word resist means to stand firm and push away. And again in Ephesians 6, we'll go through it. Verse 13 to 17. Therefore put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith 
to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now that is not a defensive stance like all the enemies coming. That is definitely an attacking stance. Not turning your eyes away from a tempting biscuit, but facing the evil one defiantly, fully armoured, fully armed. Can the worship team join me please? So just a quick recap. Your past can become your praise. Your life can be your leverage. Your obstacle can be your opportunity. And your weakness can become your weapon. So nobody in God's kingdom gets an excuse to bow out, to fade away, to be a wallflower or a background person because we're all called and all equipped, mess and all, to be carriers of hope and grace to others. As I prayed into this message, I felt there were some today that needed to lay down whatever has been your past, your obstacle or your weakness. Give it to God and trust it to him. And as you do so, Perhaps I'll invite you through the song. If, if that's you, you really want to make a statement today in your faith, come down. We'd love to pray for you. We're just going to declare the powerful name of Jesus Christ over your life. That name will redeem your offering of ashes and turn it into a crown of beauty. See says that in Isaiah. If that's you, just come up and stand, kneel. If you're not comfortable with that, there will be a prayer ministry team after the service. You can keep prayer. Don't miss out. If you haven't known what it is to submit your life to Christ, to trust him and to allow him to lead you through life's minefield, then please don't wait another day. If it's you, please come up the front and someone will come and pray for you and lead you in a prayer so that you can be freed from sin and shame. You can know his grace, his victory and his love for you and you can know Jesus for yourself. Can we stand and let's just... Worship, and as I say, come down the front if you want to respond to that.